Welcome to Changed My Mind. Over 80% of people think we are becoming more divided. But does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds us back and why changing our mind can be such a powerful thing. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, based at Stanford in California and founder of the Depolarization Project. Hosting alongside me today is Laura Osborne, a corporate affairs expert who is fascinated by what impacts reputation and makes it so hard to change our position. Hi Ali, I'm really excited to talk to our guest tonight. Not only is he related to one of my favourite people, but he also sings one of my all-time favourite songs. In all seriousness, he's a respected thinker and a real unifier of people who cares very deeply about the issues we will face today and how we might start to navigate them by coming together. Also hosting today is Alex Chesterfield, a conservative counsellor and behavioural insight expert. Hi Ali, I'm so excited to be talking to Pete today. My music taste normally is restricted to KISS FM and Capital FM. So for US listeners, that's R&B and cheesy pop. So I'm massively, massively excited to be talking to Pete today. That's great. And we've had a snippet now of who our guest is, which is Peter Gabriel. Peter is a singer, songwriter and humanitarian activist. He rose to fame as the lead singer of Genesis before leaving to launch a successful solo career. He co-founded the WOMAD Festival in 1982 and has continued to promote world music through his real world record label ever since. Peter co-founded the human rights organization Witness and the Elders. He's been recognized with Grammys, Ivan Novellos, TV Music and Brit Awards. Pete, thank you very much for coming on to Change Your Mind. We're delighted to have you here. That's all right. How much am I getting paid? Uh, <laughs> um, I think you're getting paid in our kindness and our time. I should probably explain to the listeners that Pete is, in fact, my uncle. So this might be uh, a little bit more uh, involved, a little more repartee. Irreverent. Yeah, and irreverence and not the normal degree of deference that we might extend to some of our guests. Um, but uh, I will begin by certainly being deferent, which is clearly you've achieved a huge amount in your life and we're all really proud of you. Um, and I wondered where you've travelled around the world and you've seen... Stop laughing. <laughs> and you've seen people change their minds on issues. Is, it, is there anything that's, that's particularly impressed you about that or do you observe that maybe our polarisation is getting worse or, or better as you, as you travel and you speak to people? If you look at who we're electing, there's no question that we're moving towards the extremes, uh, you know, different, whether it's America, Italy, the Philippines, Venezuela, <clears throat> you're seeing a whole sort of raft of extreme politicians. And I think, uh, I mean, one area that perhaps I did change my mind on is was I was a passionate supporter of uh, the internet and believer in its ability to liberate us in all sorts of ways. But I think now we are so easy, easily manipulated um, that uh, I think, yeah, I'm much more guarded about my uh, <clears throat> unquestioning uh, support of an unbridled internet. And um, I think we need to think very carefully. But clearly we are... I think hot and cold as a species. You know, we have our higher selves and our lower selves. And there's a newspaper maxim, which is if it bleeds, it leads. And <clears throat> people will be more drawn to watching a car crash than they will to watching the traffic flow by. So that's maybe what I would call our lower nature, you know, that the sort of sex and violence side of us. But it's something that is quite easy to trigger. And I think you have to work with uh, what our human nature is. So I just popped the mic there too. Pops the goods. Right. Okay. Sorry. It's singer's reflexes. When you pop, you retake. Um, so, yeah, when things are being wound up, people are being uh, divided, fed 
fear and hatred, then you're, you're going to get more extreme reactions and more extreme opinions. And you're sort of pushing people down the tunnel of extremist views. You know, I, I think many of the people who've voted for politicians, for instance, that are cutting uh, support for refugees in the Mediterranean, if they were in a little boat and they saw a child drowning beside them, would pull the child in. And yet they'll vote for someone who will say, let's take that boat out of the sea. This is today's news um, from the Doctors Without Borders boat. But it's just one example of where um, maybe the lower nature is being exploited and the higher nature buried. So I think I'm beginning to believe that technology and the internet, which I have praised, loved, and fought for, needs to be thought about a lot more carefully because it has the opportunity of keeping us in this super stimulated sex and violence mode. You know, if, if we're looking at all these the type of programs that, Netflix and Amazon are throwing at us now. I mean, they are getting more violent and more sexual. And I think there's a sort of potential for this spiral to move towards more extreme positions in in life and in politics and in opinions. And we need to think about that and see, are there any ways we can introduce some blue to chill things down into all this red material that we're being sensitized by or desensitized by. So I'm sure Alex will have a bunch of suggestions and, and want to talk to you from a behavioral point on that. But um, I'd love to just ask, do you find the internet has the same effect on you? Yeah. Does it make I mean, you more extreme as well? No. And, and you know, I, I think I get um, angry about some things and I'll still... There was an interesting experiment when a group of kids were taken into a supermarket and were told they could eat anything they wanted for two weeks. And they started off entirely with sort of junk food and chocolate and ended up eating fruit, veg, and brown bread. Uh, I may not have it exactly right, but that was the gist of it. So I've always had that hope that we may have a self-writing mechanism internally. However, I'm not sure that uh, I trust it as much as I used to. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I think there are brilliant people out there. And we mentioned uh, Vladislav Surkov. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name, but he's Putin's sort of main advisor, and he comes out of the theater, very cultured man, very but super smart. And they are, I think, um, manipulating people deliberately in other countries. Um, so on this sort of divide and rule, you know, on this, this idea that everything is PR and that somehow truth and hard facts are no longer important. Um, it's how you manipulate things. So when, for example, we had the Skripals um, poisoning over here, um, the Russians would, every two or three days, because they know a story gets cold after two or three days, they'd seed a new story. And it didn't matter how ridiculous it was. They knew that they could get some attention off one place and move it to another. Um, and I have no idea if this is true, but, for example... Suppose you want to take Ukraine, uh, but you think you can't do it unless you own a U.S. president uh, and you want a 10-year plan, then maybe it might be worth getting the votes rigged. Uh, you know, I don't know. I have no strong evidence there, but I'm just saying that is a possibility nowadays, that you can rig votes and you can rig people in such a way that they behave. Um, uh, yeah, it's Alex's 
the behavioral expert. Well, I'm sure she would be able to tell us a lot more about this. But, but I, I think, you know, I and that in turn brings up a big question, which is, can you trust democracy in quite the same way you used to? If we're that easily manipulated, because we now have way better manipulative tools you know, with social media, etc. That's really interesting. I want to actually put an alternative argument towards you, though. So do you think human nature is is fundamentally like this? So that we are we are prone to the darker side of life, so sex and violence, and that actually the internet simply holds a mirror up to this behaviour. So it seems more prevalent, but actually it's not. It's just that we've always been like this. And the the internet sort of which which shares it and reports it and that we can see others are doing it makes us seem that it's more more prevalent. So actually, this view that the world is getting worse and that we're becoming more polarized might actually be be wrong. So I was in, interested in your your views on that um, counter argument. Well, I think I'm sure sex and violence is, you know, been just as strong in Shakespeare's time uh, as it is now, but. Um, I think the tools are different and the ability to sustain um, people's um, stim- uh, stimulation or uh, hyper-stimulated uh, being is easier now. So, um, I yeah, I would agree that but it, it isn't really different fundamentally human nature, but just the ability to play with it. And, and the tools to play with it have changed. So, yeah, Pete, so so we know from many decades of science and evolution that humans are incredibly social and we are all heavily influenced by what other people do. So I'm interested in in this, I guess it's this point about the internet, that actually it's the internet's amplification of what else is going on so it allows us to see what others are doing that makes it seem potentially more acceptable and more of a norm which then gives us a license to do the same thing so what what other factors other than the internet and social media might be leading to this increasing polarization that you you've observed i think that the world is changing faster in other words the the factor of acceleration is, seems to have changed that the speed at which transformation has happened um the i mean the fact the very fact that almost any individual on the surface of the planet has the potential to contact any other individual on the surface of the planet is a transformational thing in itself so um plus that we can suddenly have access to information instantly Whereas before it might have taken finding a right person with knowledge or going to a library or whatever to do the research, it was a sort of much slower process. So I do think speed, you know, we're we're living in a much faster environment and we have some of these global issues to to deal with and and live with, whether it's uh, climate change or migration or... Um, nuclear bombs, which were around before, but I, I think the um, the presence of things to be worried about is greater than the things to be cheerful about. <laughs> I wanted to jump back slightly to what you were talking about with um, people being rigged by the internet, and and just to push you on this slightly, yeah. do you think you've ever been rigged by the internet? Um. I think I get, yeah, stimulated and I, you know, I find myself doing the 10 list of 10 meaningless things or, you know, I I know I can be, but I think I've always known that about myself that, that, you know, I have, um, I don't always go for the most nourishing things. For instance, if I've got a long flight um, and it's a a difference for me with a two film flight or a three film flight. (laughs) Um, I tend to go for the first film, I go for the junk food, whatever is, you know, getting some noise. And uh, and the second film may be a, um, a comedy or 
possibly foreign language thing, and the third film will often be the documentary, from which I get actually the most nourishment. But I will rarely choose it. So I think the internet um, and me are like that sometimes, that, that I will know that there's a lot of stuff out there, but I sometimes have to go through my sort of lower self-activity before I can release, you know, because in, in my work mode, I think the two great creative pillars are boredom and fatigue. Um, they make many choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that's really interesting, you know, especially what you're saying about boredom and fatigue, but also the fact that you have to almost go through a, a sort of journey of relaxation through rubbish in order to prepare, you know, and I think we all have that, you know, sometimes you you can't concentrate because of the the noise. So you have to sort of relax yourself before you can listen to something sort of interesting. Do you think when you have conversations about complex issues with people, it's sort of the same that, you know, they're more likely to, to listen and take in the information if you've started from a kind of much lighter, <laughs> you know, sort of um, subject matter and then moved into something more controversial? Well, I love conversations that jump around all over the place. And I think Sometimes, well, I still find that easier to do face-to-face than um, on the internet or, you know, texting or whatever it is. It's, um, so I, I don't know if you, if there's a sort of undeclared permission to roam more. You know, it's like when, when I'm on conference calls, even video conference calls, when I'm still present and everyone can see me. What I feel much less able to interrupt when I'm uh, re- remote than when I'm in a room. Um, and I think that's... So I, I'm not sure, therefore, if there's an underlying sense of greater freedom and permission when you're in the physical presence of someone than when you're uh, removed through internet or... Um, electronics in some form or another. Yeah. And I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence that people's behavior face to face is very different to online. We're all familiar with plenty of keyboard warriors. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, I think, sure. think about all the, the Twitter trolling where people, again, have given the license almost by their anonymity and invisibility to behave in ways they would no way behave like in a, in a face to face or, you know, one on one environment. So I think that's, so, there's definitely truth in that. But there may be, you know, I think there's a nub of something valuable to this polarization argument is that, you know, this context for behavior. So I know someone yesterday who cut me off in the car, I would behave, respond really aggressively to, yet I meet the same person, you know, at my front door an hour later, and I'll behave a very different way. Um, so, I, yeah, I think we under, need to understand on that scale, where is the internet sitting and are there things we could do to make people a little more considerate and compassionate um, if, if one accepts that's the goal. Yeah, and I mean, it is, it's interesting that Instagram, I think a bit more than Facebook, has got a depolarization unit in-house. And I know they're running some tests, but they're, they're not yet allowed to share what they are. And I find it fascinating that they're going to be looking at imagery and video, obviously, because mm. it's on Instagram, and how that polarizes and they can contribute against that. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing what they've got to say. They've, they've stolen a bunch of Stanford psychologists to do that. Um, so they are running very large-scale experiments to look at it. It's interesting, but I had... Um... I was at a XPRIZE thing this week and there was uh, Joanna Shields was there who was, uh, you know, Google and ran Facebook here for a while. And then she was put in charge of sort of cyber security in the UK. And she said they'd come up with um, a program which they had a lot of evidence for, which showed that they could identify potential terrorists from vocal characteristics that could be monitored. And, um, and I, well, I think there were some other, other things, but anyway, it was offered to, um, to Facebook and Twitter and was turned down. And she was very disillusioned by that, that, and I think it's possibly, you know, I asked her a little bit that if they, 
own responsibility for content, then it puts them in a different legal situation and they're trying to pretend that they, they're, um, you know, Trying, yeah, trying to pretend they're not a publisher and it doesn't they're really hold, hold water any longer. Yeah, and I think and, and, it's but, starting but to change. Yeah, but that's a key key difference because they, I mean, they have permeated extraordinary numbers of people at uh, in extraordinary depths. You know, I think the, the the way we interface with the internet, you know, people often say, yeah, Google will know more about me than my partner. Uh, you know, it's that data is hugely important, hugely valuable, needs protecting, and that's another issue. But but I think we're just like babes entering this new world. And um, there are, um, like all babes, we need some protection. Yeah, and the regulators were, were very slow to respond. I just want to move into a slightly different area of your life, which is your work with the elders and how they try and bridge divides and resolve problems behind the scenes using their expertise as leaders. I wondered if you were able to share any examples where you felt they'd been particularly effective at depolarizing people to change their mind. And what techniques had they deployed to do that? Well, quite a few of the elders have been involved in peace negotiations or Marti Artisari or Desmond Tutu, Truth and Reconciliation. You know, there are People that definitely were um, uh, Hutus and Tutsis. In fact, the first conversation with Mandela when Richard Branson and I were trying to sell him this idea of the elders um, at Holland Park down the road here, but uh, he said, I don't think those in power will want a bunch of old-timers interfering. That was his first reaction. And then he remembered... um, when he was asked to help uh, peace negotiations with Hutus and Tutsis um, you know, after the terrible genocide in Rwanda. And um, he'd observed that actually the young leaders, the young generals, um, seemed to trust him in a way they didn't trust anyone else. And they'd said to him, you know, when, when we're talking with you, it's like talking uh, to our, our dad or who we feel we can trust has no other agenda other than bringing a peaceful outcome for all those involved here. Everyone else we've been asked to talk with or negotiate with, we feel has a very different agenda. So I think for us, the dream for the elders was that these people who've led extraordinary lives and won a lot of respect around the world no longer have political power, economic power, or military power behind them. Uh, they're just they're um, sailing under moral power, and there's not a lot of that around in the world. So, I think the dream was to try and see if they could have um, a role in yeah conflict resolution in long term problems, things like. Um, yeah, the women's rights, um, or universal health care, as well as specific issues, you know, and problems. So when a group of them under Kofi went to Kenya, you know, I think they did help stop the outbreak of violence. And, you know, they've been to various places that have been um, ripe with conflict and uh, calm conversations with people who've sort of been there before and seen similar situations can be helpful, you know. And and I think there is a lot in... Um, Jimmy Carter told this story to the elders about a time when he, he was uh, doing the Camp David negotiations with um, Sadat and uh, Rabin uh, or Begin. I can't remember. I think it was Begin. Anyway, it, the talks, you know, they worked long, long and hard and... Um, um, he, um, they'd sort of given up pretty much. And then, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Begin came to him just to say goodbye and thank him. Um, and he had a picture of Carter and he said, would you sign this for my grandchildren? Um, and 
suddenly there was a moment and they started talking about children and grandchildren and uh, both started weeping and they reopened the, the talks, you know. So it was a very moving thing to hear, but it just gave you this sense of hope that actually sometimes the most intractable, locked-in opponents um, will, through their own humanity, find ways of listening and accommodating other people. And I think that's what's being lost in this increasingly polarised world. There's quite a lot of evidence to support both parts of what you're saying, but also that one of the ways to rectify it is that people will have a much better conversation about a difficult issue if they first have a discussion about something that is completely different and where they agree. So the example is with their grandkids and where they bonded over that there or with other people talking about, I don't know, a sport or a sports team. Like you have people who both support Arsenal, for example, are much less likely to have a very um, extreme disagreement about uh, whether we should leave the EU or not because they've got this other thing in common to start with yeah. um, and how that creates different groups um, and goes from goes from there. Sorry, just on that, I was thinking of this guy, Oliviero Toscani, who's a friend, but he's a sort of provocative guy. He's a photographer who was best known for the Benetton campaigns that um, caused a lot of controversy with death penalty and with AIDS and so on. But he designed a TV program where he'd find um, opponents. So, for instance, he had a uh, sort of hard right police group with a sort of hard left gay group. Um, and the the program was built around a white cube. And I think it was an hour long. But the cube shrunk during the course of the hour so that these people had to get physically <laughs> very close to each other. But it was really interesting in the way that distance, physical distance, allowed for a different type of behavior. That once you're sort of um, crawling over someone, you're going to be forced to behave, maybe not positively, but differently by nature of the the closeness and the intimacy so so i guess my question is is that you know like my behavior in the car the internet supports that long distance um no responsibility no commitment or compassion for this other person um type of behavior and is there a way of somehow getting a toll of humanness that allows you, that gives you, that opens up your internet access every day, that somehow makes you more vulnerable, but more real and more open to the other person. Now, it's all got to be based on trust. Another example, you know, from the elders, but when Mandela was coming out of 27 years in jail, deciding, you know, what on earth you can do with such a divided, polarized country, his decision was to trust his enemies. And there were people who had murdered his friends, put them in jail, tortured his friends, and he was now talking to them like he would his family or his neighbors and saying, will you come with me and work in this new world? I'm going to try and build this rainbow coalition. That type of leadership, you know, where where can we find that today? Because you, you think that's got to be what's going to break through this polarized, but it's got to be done in a way where people are sacrificing some of the safety of the distance um, for the greater good of opening up and, you know, better understanding. Because I think someone described to me the barrier between them and us is where, how you could tell how civilized someone was. That if, you know, if you put the barrier of them immediately outside yourself, you knew you were in one place. But if you put 
your family or your town or your village or your country or the world as us, then you behave differently. So, so in my mind, we need techniques, a whole array, an army of techniques to move that point at which each of us turn us into them because that's the crux, the, the critical point which allows us to behave with hatred. So Pete, I want to come back to this point you made about the lack of trust. It's interesting, one of our earlier guests, Jonathan Haidt, the moral psychologist, also mentioned the idea of trust being this master variable, almost like a glue that holds society together. So you're a, you're a person of influence, you've got a high profile. Have you seen it become harder for people to trust you or to get people to listen to your views or your experience over the last years, last few years, has that has that changed? Well, I don't know. You know, I think I'm a musician, so I don't know how much people trust musicians. I think, you know, we all have people that we think have lived a bit of life for us, you know, and and you live partly vicariously through these other people, but... You know, I met a guy the other day who was trying to turn scientists into rock stars, you know, because we we tend, you know, in the old days, maybe we would partly live through um, royal families around the world. And now it's maybe, you know, TV, film or sports stars uh, or occasional music people. But we're very social. But, you know, we like to think we're creatures of free will, but but actually we're enormously influenced by what others uh, think and feel and you know it's it's a brave individual that is willing to go against the mob which is actually why I wrote a song called Milgram's 37 because in the classic psychological and uh, controversial test when uh, a group of volunteers were asked to inflict pain on a group they thought were students um, only 37 percent uh, in that first experiment were willing to refuse to to go to the sort of triple X high pain position button on this um, effectively torture machine. Yeah, yeah. Which is, and and did you find that that music or any of the other music that you've done with um, Milgram's Thirty Seven um, did that encourage people to help talk about the issues, or do you think there's a role for music to play in depolarization and and helping? resolve difference i do on a number of levels actually uh you know i i don't as a young man in the 60s i probably would have thought you know all the beatles have just led this revolution young people are taking power for the first time it's going to transform everything um of course that didn't happen but there are some advantages musicians um plug into the emotional, you know, I, I always think a, a music collection is a bit like a, a cupboard full of pills. You know, you have ways to control your mood through what you choose to play. Um, and although, you know, we'll ne- we're never going to get to the depth of an issue that a writer would, um, might get, I think we have a role, you know, with film, art, music in questioning and introducing ideas and have you and i suppose i I just want to build on that because you run womad which is world of music arts and and drama and the festival there and that's brought together a lot of people over the years and exposed people to, to different things and have you found that leads to sustained connections or maybe people even changing their own minds have you ever tested that or been curious to find that out about attendees yeah well i think you know i came from a comfortable middle class uh, home, which you know all too well, and um, it's uh, um, so to be opened up to the world was um, a process and not always comfortable. But you know, I'm so grateful, uh, and you know, I think part of what Womad celebrates um, is, yeah, is, is music's ability to to get under the sheets and and touch people in ways that uh, others things don't maybe um but but it also 
also is there to show the stupidity of racism, you know, because I found that people with whom I couldn't communicate, who came from different cultures, different religions, uh, different languages, once we started making noises together, you know, we could start laughing and smiling and feeling the emotion of what each other was doing. And, you know, you can do that with words and with food and images, but it's um, somehow more directly plugged into the emotional system without going through a lot of the mental filters that that language has. It's, it's a, it is a type of language music, but it's a more emotional and direct version. And do you make any attempts with WOMAD, and I just don't know the answer, maybe I should, to um, reach out to people who maybe might find that kind of interaction most difficult. And I suppose, and it's a sweeping generalisation, but people who maybe are hostile to immigration or um, and groups like that, who suddenly then have a, hopefully a much more positive experience where they've shared things and that's been brokered. Do you do any of that work? Well, half price for racists. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I don't, well, actually, just because you're no, having... But, but actually, no, you're the... the, 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 the that's brilliant. The, 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 the point... <laughs> yeah, come on, start the WOMAD half price for racists. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but in a way, it's... Uh, we don't really, other than... You know, some of the, I think some of the work that the foundation does, which is not, you know, a huge entity, as you also know, but but in other words, taking some of these musicians from other countries into into schools is a great thing for, for kids. Because I think, you know, a lot of this stuff does begin in, in childhood. You know, you just been reading this book by this guy Hinton, I can't remember his first name, but who uh, was on death row and um, for a crime that he didn't commit. Um, but he got friendly, he black, and he got friendly with this Ku Klux Klan guy who was also there for murder. And that is what gives me hope. You know, when people from break through the stereotypes, you know, we it's the, our, our ability to judge is the thing that scares me, uh, you know, that if we can put the judgments down and uh, find ways to explore each other's humanity, then I think there's there's room for hope. So can I just challenge you to put maybe one of your judgments down? I know you were slightly joking, right. but you kind of said half price for racists. Yeah. And actually just because somebody is slightly struggling with immigration or or reconciling how their life will fit with people who might be from another race coming in. That doesn't, I don't think that inherently means that they, they no. hate them. It just means that they're having, have, find it a bit difficult. And that's, yeah. that's well, my, perfectly my, understandable and okay, isn't it? Yeah. And my, my dad, who was uh, a hero to me in so many ways, you know, um, and, uh, and very progressive and, and liberal minded in, in lots of areas, you know, as in his late nineties, wasn't comfortable with nurses of a different color. Uh, and that would be, so yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, with humanity, you have to work with what is. A lot of it's very natural. You know, I, I don't see myself as that much more evolved. I, I know I will still have judgments and prejudices that have been fed into me uh, or, um, that I have to work hard to break through. Are there any that you're currently working on at the minute? Oh, was, I've got a thing with nieces. But <laughs> <What? laughs> I'm working them on right now. You love them just a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, not in the sort of, no. I was, I oh, God, let's I was not go make, there. I, I was going to make a very <laughs> inappropriate remark, but that's... <laughs> That's a family weakness, inappropriate yeah, remarks. Uh, well, yeah. it will be a short dive from there to farting, I can tell yeah, you right now. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Laura, welcome to our family. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Great. <laughs> but <sighs> yeah, is there anything that you're that you'd like you wish you could be a bit more open-minded on that you're not? Um 
one of the things which partly from talking to your mum, but I'm I'm trying to work out on um, schools, religious schools, for example, you know, and it seems to me things in society are either designed to bring us more together or to separate us more. And I, and I think I'm against things that separate us more. So I think I'm coming to the conclusion, having thought, you know, it's, it's this whole multicultural debate that that things should, that people should have their rights to be who they want to be and follow their own beliefs, which I would still support, but it cannot be at the cost of... Um, separating people too much and um, feeding division. But, you know, that's such an awkward bugger to get right. You know, where is that line and how do you, you know, I I don't know the answers to these questions. One of the ideas that I thought would be interesting to talk about is whether now we know in sort of subatomic physics that it's possible for a particle to be in two places at one time. Whether we're moving to an age where you can be in two ideology places at one time. Um, can I be, um, you, know, you know, are we potentially hypocrites and of multiple? Are we multiple persona in this new world? And if that's an idea that it has some carries some water, then then how do we respond to that? And do we have to say on this line of um, whatever it is, people are being left and right, or in, in political terms, or whatever that that actually you've got one particular point along that line, or could you be in two different points? And so there is that view of polarization is is it just the one position of the pole or can you be on the north pole and the south pole simultaneously yeah so people do hold conflicting views um so let me give you an example so in local politics we see people all the time in favor of more affordable housing in the general area but as soon as it comes to their own backyard they don't want any housing on their fields you know in their back gardens to be built on but, and this is the key thing, we really don't like this inconsistency. We like, we really, really prefer, we're really, really motivated to be consistent in our thoughts and actions. So there's this famous psychologist called Leon Festinger who developed a theory called cognitive dissonance to describe this mental stress and this discomfort that we feel when we hold two conflicting thoughts. And typically what you see it's people going out of their way to reduce this dissonance or, or inconsistency by changing their behavior or their beliefs so it's so it's consistent. Um, so they can do this by, um, oh, sorry, I just said that. So you can change your behavior so it's much more consistent with your thoughts. You can avoid or reject information that doesn't fit with one of your beliefs or just by rationalizing or, or justifying your position. So again, thinking back to our housing example, people might start rationalizing why it's not actually the right thing to build in their backyards for seemingly very good reasons. So, you know, the badgers, or you know, it's the rabbits, or you know, the bees, and they never actually cared about those things, but it helps them to uh, align and, and, and to, to make their views um, and beliefs you know, much, more, much more consistent. So yes, people can hold and often do hold very multiple, sorry, multiple conflicting positions, but on the whole, we're generally motivated to find ways to appear and feel as consistent as possible. Laura, I'm conscious that you might have a question or two that you want to chip in. Yeah, thanks, Abby. Um, Pete, I was just going to ask, is there one standout, you know, issue for you that, that you have, you know, either changed your mind on quite fundamentally or, or wanted to, but been unable to? I mean, when Ali first mentioned this, I was trying to think, um, and obviously I knew that I was right 100% of the time on everything. So, of course. Um, <laughs> so, so I thought, oh, how can this apply to me? No, but I think, you know, my positions have changed often. 
Dickie's laughing at me now. <laughs> but um, that's, I have a slightly different persona when I'm touring, but that's another story. Um, anyway, um, but animal intelligence was one thing, you know, where um, I thought it was limited. And then actually when I spent time with apes, that was something that blew me away. Just um, was painfully obvious. You'd have to be, in my opinion, deaf, dumb, and blind not to uh, recognize um, intelligence once you start working with, uh, well, these were language-able um, bonobo apes, but there are, I think, with dolphins, elephants. Uh, I mean, it, it sounds like old hippie stuff, but which it is in part, but, but actually... There's a very hard issue because we are destroying most of the natural environment. We only have for one planet, all these cliches, but um, we share it with other species. And when you learn how many stars there are out there, there's absolute certainty that there have to be other intelligent life forms somewhere out there. So one day we're going to come across them. Um, unless we uh, remove ourselves from the world of the living beforehand, which is perfectly possible. Uh, and at that moment, it would be very helpful if we'd had some experience in trying to communicate with intelligent species already on our planet before we destroy them all. Absolutely. That's a very serious note, but I'm, I feel like I would be doing the listeners a disservice if I didn't ask you about your on-tour personality. How is it different? Oh, my on-tour personality, I can be an awkward bastard. Uh, and um, <laughs> and Dickie, as my engineer, when things are going wrong or something's really pissing me off during a performance, um, he will get, the, he will get the, uh, the rough end of it. Would you agree with that, Dickie? Yeah. As part of what happens, he's saying very diplomatically. When you're performing and it's a complex operation, things have to be dealt with urgently and with intent. Pete, on that note, I think we need to bring this to, to a, a close. close. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been lovely to have you here and being so Actually, candid. I do want to mention one other thing while we're still going. Oh, gosh. And no, What's well, coming? we were talking about it upstairs. <laughs> no, it's, well, it was related with <laughs> trust. <laughs> I'll but, be more polite than you. This is, this is, I think, called it. revenge, maybe. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It's, it's, it's not, well, firstly, the inner world, which is getting stormier, um, the old trees get knocked over by hurricanes. The young, flexible ones don't. So how do we retain youthfulness and flexibility uh, in our mental state as well as our physical state? Um, that's one question. And the other was about um, democracies, which we sort of touched on. But if it is true that we're getting much easier to manipulate, um, can we trust democracy any longer? Well, the second question I think might be slightly easier to answer than the, the first. The way to frame that might be actually, can we trust democracy as it's regulated at the minute? Because actually, you know, there's quite a lot of integrity and a lot of the UK electoral process on the whole. You know, it's very unusual for um, ballot papers to go missing oh, or sorry. for no, all of you, that kind of I stuff. I think you're misunderstanding but Do you mean the role of social media, particularly in democracy well, or outside I, influence or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, can we trust ourselves um, any longer? And are we better off, um, I don't know, with uh, electing finding some people that we think are better than us and trusting them with a, which is sort of our electoral system. It's kind system. of what an MP is though, in theory. Well, in a way, yeah. But but other ways, but we don't get in, involved in the selection. I mean, I know in some parties you're supposed to be able to get involved in the selection of MPs maybe, but it's it, somehow it always, well, felt too far. But so, I well, it's just... So I guess, and I'm, I'm not putting it on a them. I'm saying, can I be trusted to make the right decision on, on things that are going to affect the future for my children when I know I'm being wound up? 
So one of our earlier guests, a woman called Deborah Mattinson, who specializes in, um, I guess, strategy and insult and polling, was talking about the role that citizens' juries could play in that. And I suppose my my and and the role that increased deliberation and education and thoughtful exposure to um facts and experience can change how people make decisions and uh, i suppose my initial take would be the way if there's a problem with trusting people or, or politicians being in touch with the electorate is not to widen that gap and uh, it is to try and reduce it and to involve more people in those in, in what's happening. So a citizen's jury, in effect, is where you delegate a bit of a decision down to a representative group of people who will study what's going on and uh, and be presented with facts, often with guidance, and then make a decision. So in our law courts, that's exactly what juries do all of the time. And her suggestion, with which I personally have a great deal of sympathy, is... Um, to try and do more of that and for people to get more relaxed about giving up power rather than than centralising it. Um, and so people feel like they've got more of a stake in their societies. It's really very hard to do well and for people who are already quite distant from the electoral process to be brought into it or who have lost faith in it. Um, but that, I suppose, would be, yes, democracy is definitely in a crisis, particularly Western yeah. liberal democracies. But that feels like a better way to go to try and solve it yeah. rather than to give people less of a say. Well, I, I agree. I like the, the jury system. I think it's a really important element, less easy to manipulate. Um, however, it's probably the three E's that need better bearing, which, as you described, really, education, um, evidence and experience. Uh, because, you know, things that can get you further down any of those lines um, will, I think, make you a better decision maker. Yeah, there's definitely quite a lot in that. Pete, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Um, it was lovely to talk to you. No, about lovely to talk very, to you. Very, very different. Laura, Laura, it was brilliant. Thanks yeah, so much. Great. Thank you. You've given us so much. Laura. Um, thank you, Laura. I've enjoyed the insight so, into your family as well, Ali. Yeah, well, you <laughs> you, you haven't seen any dinner. of it yet. <laughs> thank you, listeners, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed and are challenged by that as much as we were. Next week, we're going to be joined by a leading voice in the business community who talks about how the people he works with changed his mind on a big constitutional issue. We'd like to thank our producer, Caroline Crampton, Pete Soundman, Dickie Chappell, Open Democracy, who helped share the show with their many readers, and Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is used in Creative Commons as our music. <laughs>